Hey, John Matalavich here from Ruthless Performance. You're listening to the Human Advancement Podcast. Today's episode is a highly informative roundtable discussion among a handful of swimming strength and conditioning experts who have an impact on how workouts are formed for swimmers across the globe. The amount of Olympic medalists that this panel of experts has worked with is in the triple digits. With NCAA Division I swimmers, that number skyrockets to over 1,000. So needless to say, this group is brilliant. They easily have more time in the trenches and overall greater perspective on the needs of high-performing swimmers than 99% of coaches out there. And I say 99% with some hesitation, as that infers one out of 100 strength and conditioning coaches has greater perspective than these fun folks, and I highly doubt that. Most, if not all, of these coaches would be too humble to accept this designation, but as I briefly cover their bios, you'll quickly take my point. Starting with Lee Summers. Lee is a strength and conditioning coach out of Bethesda, Maryland. He works with some of the greatest USA swimming clubs in the country, notably Nation's Capital Swim Club. Lee trained Olympic gold medalist and world record holder Katie Ledecky for the four years leading up to the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. I had initially heard about Lee on another podcast. Once I realized that he was within a four-hour driving distance of my home in central PA, I reached out to Lee, and he was kind enough to let me shadow him for a day. Matt Delancey is the next expert. He is the Assistant Director of Strength and Conditioning for the Florida Gators. Matt has worked with some real heavy hitters in swimming, including Ryan Lochte, as well as USA Swimming's new star, Caleb Dressel. Matt actually has an interesting story towards the end of the call about Ryan Lochte and how he broke his ankle just days before a crucial championship meet. The next expert is Dr. John Mullen. I began working with his company, Swimming Science, somewhere around 2013 or 2014. Uh, we've worked together ever since, and we've worked on some big projects, including the first iteration of this expert panel, which was in 2016. And this uh, initial panel had some of the experts on involved that you'll hear today. Though today's episode was recorded on April 16th, 2020. Dr. John Mullen grew up swimming in Centerville, Ohio, and swam collegiately at Purdue University. Since college, he went on to earn his doctorate in physical therapy from USC and opened his own rehab and performance facility in Santa Clara, California. Since then, he has worked with over 30 Olympic and professional athletes, helping them earn over 15 Olympic medals. The next expert is Keenan Robinson. Keenan was directly responsible for the development of strength and conditioning programming for Michael Phelps and for a time worked at the legendary North Baltimore Aquatic Club. Keenan is the Director of Sports Medicine and Science for USA Swimming, where he now has a similar role on the national level. Keenan is one of my favorite voices on the topic and you'll get a great sense of why as this conversation unfolds. The next expert is Caitlin Haycock and she's yet another great voice on the panel and she came into the picture by recommendation of Mr. Keenan Robinson. Caitlin joined the University of Michigan Olympic Sports Strength and Conditioning team as a graduate assistant assistant in 2011 and currently serves as strength and conditioning coach. She is responsible for program design and implementation for field hockey and women's soccer and previously for men's and women's swimming and diving. In her time at University of Michigan, Caitlin has been the strength and conditioning coach for nine Big Ten championship teams including men's swimming and diving from 2012 to 2016, women's swimming and diving from 2016 to 2018, field hockey in 2017, and one national championship team 
the men's swimming and diving team in 2013. What I find most interesting about Caitlin's work is that she also designs and implements training programs for the professional swim group Club Wolverine Elite. If you're unfamiliar with them, the mission statement should make their purpose very evident. Club Wolverine Elite is a high-performance swim team that trains swimmers for one reason, to compete at the Olympics. Now, I'm no expert in mission statement design, but that one has pretty much everything and centers around just about the coolest purpose under the sun. Uh, the last expert is Jun Zhang. He's the assistant strength and conditioning coach for Olympic sports at the University of Virginia. Personally, as a strength and conditioning coach, cares a great deal about helping sprint swimmers. I uh, was very happy to get him involved in the call and just get someone involved from the University of Virginia. Uh, Jun was born in South Korea and then raised in New York. He is currently finishing his sixth year at Virginia and his current responsibilities are with the swim team, wrestling team, and track team, uh, specifically their throwers. So a dialogue between seven people is an interesting thing to try to balance, particularly when everyone has so much to offer. I do my best here and overall the value of this dialogue should speak for itself. It was a real treat to be part of a panel with these experts and with any luck we'll have them back on the podcast. So here it is, the audio from our Strength and Conditioning for Swimmers Roundtable. I, uh, I'm the owner of Ruthless Performance. Uh, I'm an applied physiologist by trade. I, uh, I work with swimmers throughout um, East Central PA for the most part. Um, I've done some work uh, with swimming science in the past. Uh, I think me and Dr. John have been um, involved in some capacity since uh, 2016 or 2015 even. Um, so I'll uh, just kind of pass this over to Dr. John. He could do his bio and then we'll all kind of run through from there. All right. Um... I'm John Mullen. I'm a physical therapist and strength coach in Santa Clara, California. I have a PT and strength and conditioning facility out here. Also, um, the creator of Swimming Science, a, a website trying to merge the fields of science and just, uh, the, just the general knowledge base for the swimming world. So trying to break down research information, make it digestible for coaches, swimmers, or anyone else who's interested within learning more about not only strength and conditioning, but swimming in general. Who's up next? Come on, moderator. You got to pick someone. Oh, we'll Kayla, let's we'll go with you. <laughs> Kayla, you're right. You're right next to me here, so we'll uh, I'll go across the screen. All right. Um, my name is Kaylin Haycock, and I'm a strength and conditioning coach at the University of Michigan. And for the first eight years I was here, I worked with the swimming and diving program. Um, no longer work with them, but still involved in the swim world with some of the Club Wolverine elite athletes here. Awesome. You came highly recommended from a fellow, uh, fellow commentator here, Keenan. Um, so, Keenan, maybe do you want to talk a little bit about what, what you do with USA Swimming? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Keenan Robinson, I'm the Director of Sports Medicine and Science for USA Swimming. Um, got a background in athletic training, strength conditioning, physiology, and um, 
Yeah, just. You're a known entity. <laughs> it's because I know Matt Delancey, that's why. Uh oh. Stop. <laughs> hey, Matt, you want to uh, take over? So, my, Matt Delancey, I've been at the University of Florida for 18 years working with swimming and diving. Um, worked with, uh, I'm not sure how many Olympians at this point. Um, but we've we've had some success at Florida with swimming, and uh, I think we do some unique things with the with the population. So that's my background. Awesome, Lee. I'm Lee Summers. Uh, I'm owner of Purpose Personal Fitness I'm here in uh, the D.C. area. Uh, work with swimmers. Work with uh, Nation's Capital Swim Club and Rockville Montgomery Swim Club here in the D.C. area. I've been working with swimmers now for about the last seven years. Uh, I have worked with a couple of people on the call uh, with, uh, as it pertains to several athletes. And Matt, it sounds like as of last week, you're getting one of our, one of our swimmers just committed to Florida. So you'll be seeing them soon. Awesome. I was, uh, I, I first met uh, Lee probably early last year, actually, after hearing a podcast that he was on. Um, and because of our proximity to each other, he was just a couple hours away. I was, I was quick to uh, shadow him uh, and happily obliged. And I was very vindicated by seeing that a lot of what he does is a lot of what I do. So I like surrounding myself with voices that, that sound like me. So, <laughs> so, so. John, I'll tell you, I had a similar experience with Keenan six, seven years ago when I went down to North Baltimore to see him. So uh, it's, it's always nice. Awesome. And then our, our last representative is here from uh, University of Virginia. Uh, June, you want to talk about yourself a little bit? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is June Jung. I've been at the University of Virginia for the past six years now, completing my fifth year with the swimming team here. Just very uh, humbled and grateful to be in y'all's presence. So I really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, I, I'll just make a quick note. I, I was happy to reach out to you just because I, I like a lot of what, uh, what Todd DeSorbo is doing with sprinters over there. Um, so I, I am curious as we move forward here a little bit further into the conversation to talk about uh, specifically sprinters kind of across the board here and, and what we're doing uh, really to maximize their performance. Yeah. Um, so I guess just kind of given the, the state of things, the state of affairs uh, right now, um, the, the smartest thing to, that we could talk about just at, as brief as possible, I guess, would be COVID training and um, what it means to uh, all of our athletes and, and how the changes to the Olympic cycle are going to uh, affect training. Um, does anyone have any comments? We want to want to take it away here. Caitlin, perhaps. Um, so it's been interesting for us uh, at the university level um, with the student athletes, we've got a variety of individuals who have nothing available to them in terms of equipment. And then we have quite a few who have um, either home gyms or partial gyms or were able to take some, um, snag some equipment. We had a couple who were able to go to a CrossFit gym and, and borrow some. So um, a pretty wide range. So it's actually been fun on my part to be able to individualize it to them a little bit more. Um, so when all of this happened, we had for the the teams that I was working with, we had just started new phases. So I was able to um, provide both that phase to them if they had things available and then make some adjustments. Um, and so as far as the um, Olympic year goes, um, for the, the couple that I work with who are doing trials next year, um, had to work with them as far as kind of restructuring what 
what this looks like right now. And then a lot of it came down to adjusting around what their altered sport training schedules are. Um, so not only what was available to them, but what their sport training looked like. So um, just kind of working collaboratively, collaboratively with, uh, with them on that first and foremost. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I, one of the things that I think swimmers are, are pretty uh, pretty notorious for is their reliance on body weight training, which I've been spending just years trying to get my swimmers away from. And now, now with our current situation, I've had to walk back a lot of those comments just to kind of uh, just to kind of give them some kind of program to to go with. Because, like you said, we don't know what what kind of equipment they have at home, and it, it it's such a pain just trying to individualize everything as much as we can, just do you know whatever they happen to have laying around. And half the time with some of these high school kids it's just like their mom's three pounds waist or something like that from their their zumba classes so we, we are limited but it, it is uh it's an interesting time and it's it's kind of good to see what how we could adapt um keenan do you want to take over this question i mean you're you're kind of the uh the olympics dude here <laughs> no actually everybody involved here is the olympics dude uh, <laughs> and as of right now we've only got three athletes in the united states that have qualified for the olympics our three 10k swimmers so uh Fair game for everybody. You know, everybody's got an opportunity. Everybody's got a lane. So we should start with that. You know, it's interesting. Uh, akin to probably what most people here will be saying is based on their populations, um, it, it was uh, you're either okay. You have equipment. You don't have equipment, or you got some somewhere in between. That's fine. Uh, I think all of us have our, our basic routine of um, these are our, these are our non-negotiables. These are our key performance indicators when we program. So it doesn't, doesn't change our, our approach and our methodology, meaning um, think back, like all you guys will get a, all you guys, right? And gals, I'm not being gender specific, <laughs> right? Caitlin, you know yeah, that. No, no offense. <laughs> so uh, Lee, John, uh, John and John, myself, like you guys remember when you guys, we got them 11 to 13 year old cats coming in and it didn't change for the most part when they became freshmen uh, for June and Caitlin and, and Mad Dog is like, remember how long we spent trying to teach these kids squat and hinge mechanics without any sort of implement, without any sort of equipment. It took a whole heck of a lot of time unless they came from club programs where they were taught well to do it. And that was like three weeks, right? And then you could start to add a dumbbell, a kettlebell, a resistance band to that hinge, to that squat pattern, what have you. And then we did mental backflips. The athletes didn't know that when we could actually put a bar on their back and know safely that they could perform and execute a movement. Now, for all those people, like now, now that they're, they're not, they no longer have access to a weight room, I don't understand why we'd want them doing some brand new movement, some brand, or, or the same movement at some ridiculous pace to hit every minute on the minute or um, jumping around like a circus clown and screwing up all the things that we had spent all fall teaching them what to do. So for me, it was pretty simple. The, the 12, 13 kids that, that we still program for, it's like, all right, these are, these are what we typically do on a Monday. We're going to go through that sequence. If there is no equipment, that's fine. I just want to groove the movement pattern because we've put enough physical money in the bank by, 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 by what they've done pre-COVID-19, that when they come out of this, uh, they'll, they'll be fine. Now, if I was just like, wow, you know, just uh, just check what's going on on social media and do some sort of derivative of it, like that, that's going to set them back. <laughs> that's going to set them back. So 
Um, and uh, Caitlin, you, you know this, right? Your boss, Mike Faber, he said it best, right? The best piece of equipment, the best available is the human body. So teach them how to master that and we'll be good to go. I'm gonna hand off, uh, he's not ready for it, but I'm gonna hand off because he's gonna go right for the touchdown when it comes to some of the energy system development or perhaps running and, and stuff on land with Matt, because I know he and I have talked about it in the last three or four weeks while we've just kind of sat back and I'm like, why are these cats running for five miles when they haven't run at all? Like there's some other things we need to do. So Matt, go ahead, take it across the goal line from here. So if you have nothing available to you in terms of barbells, dumbbells, med balls, bands, uh, to me, the biggest bang you can get is jumping and sprinting. So for us, jumping and sprinting is a big part of our program. So we, we, we program three days of jumps and sprints, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Tuesday, Thursday, we program pillar, pedestal, some sort of a core program that is a relevant core program, not fluff and just working for the sake of working. I mean, working postures and different holds and so maybe some with these centric isometric counts. I mean, we're, we want to do things that are relevant to what we're trying to accomplish with these athletes in the water. I mean, I go on Instagram and watch terrible jumps and horrendous push-ups and they could do that all day, but we're, we're the, we turn a quarantine situation now into an overuse injury. And I think that's where with, with this group in general, they are a group that wants to grind, grind, when they don't need to a lot of times. And I think the swim population is probably the one group that can come out of all this banged up and injured if they're not careful. <laughs> uh, one of the things I, I kind of wanted to talk to you uh, or, or mention a little bit later, Matt, um, that I like that you had, I'd like to point people to your Twitter page where you had up a, uh, a video of you training uh, Caleb Dressel. And one of the exercises you were doing with them was the flying step up. Uh, and that's actually, that's something I've done today and, and moving forward, that's an exercise I'll, I look forward to implementing with some of our swimmers. And again, that, that flying step up is something I recommend people people finding in, in uh, on your Twitter feed there. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> I think, it, any, I think uh, it's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say any, any remaining points on the uh, Olympic uh, training cycle? Or yeah, on the Olympic training cycle uh, before uh, before we kind of get on to uh, some of the next points. I just want to hammer home something that Matt was kind of alluding to there, which is I'm finding a lot of swimmers from 10 all the way up through college age who kind of feel like I'm not getting my conditioning, I'm getting out of shape, and so I need to go for an eight-mile run. I need to go for a 10-mile run. And these guys are doing two-hour practices sometimes twice a day. They have the conditioning, they have the stamina and the endurance to be able to go out and do that but their bodies are paying the price. Ankles, knees, low backs are paying the price. Uh, we know that as far as our cardiorespiratory system, they can handle it. It's not a question of handling it. Is it mindful? Is it sensible? And that's a conversation I'm trying really hard to have with every athlete that sits in front of me on a virtual or anywhere else where they, we have to find another way. We have to find other ways to challenge our energy systems where we're not, we're not taxing them to the point where, like Matt said, they're gonna come out of this worse than they came in, which would be a shame for as much work as they put in for 11 months leading up to it. One of the things I found value in, in terms of overuse injuries and swimmers, since this has started, is just imposing some, some level of forced rest from one set to the next, um, just to kind of prevent them from, from getting into that pattern that they're so used to, of just kind of, like, like Matt said, just grinding from, from one set and one exercise all the way through. So I agree completely. 
Yeah, and just to you know, reiterate, this isn't just the age groupers. You know, I had a call with an older swimmer who's in his 30s, who's on the national team. Keenan, you probably know who I'm talking about yesterday, how he wants to go for a 10-mile run. He's thinking about doing intermittent fasting because he's feeling out of shape and all this. And it's like, all right, take a step back. We don't need, like, like everyone else here has reiterated, reiterated. We don't want to re rewrite everything. We don't need to retool everything. It's just kind of continuing the plan, continuing the process. If we need to have a little mental break or something, that's fine. Or maybe we need to still hop on a call every so often just to keep you on path and keep you sane. That can be done because I think the, the overtraining, you know, issue is a big thing. And swimmers are grinders. So it's important just to, I think, as strength coaches or swim coaches, whoever it is, just to stay in touch with the athletes and keep hammering home the the overall goals and philosophies because it doesn't hasn't changed simple as that I think one thing that's important to remember is just the fact that you know conditioning is fast to go away when you have a, a really well conditioned athlete they they notice when they take that initial hit but just as fast as that conditioning is to go away I mean you could you can actually recoup that pretty fast um, and that's something a lot of swimmers don't realize I, I don't think the same could be said about strength necessarily but conditioning is, is fortunate in that regard um, Keenan, I kind of want to jump back to something you said about um, some performance indicators. Um, this is a, a question basically for everyone here with some of our higher level athletes. What, um, what kind of, uh, so I, I'm not a huge tech guy. The extent to which I use tech with my athletes is just some basic performance metrics on Excel. Um, what, um, what kind of software or technology are we using to, uh, to, to kind of manage our athletes? And in addition to that, are we, what are we doing to ensure that we're measuring the right things and not just measuring what's easy to measure? Yes, asking me first. Um, I think, I think it's, a, it's an individual question, right? Uh, and it's, it's a bigger, it's a 30,000 foot view question, in my opinion, uh, in terms of strength conditioning and, and, uh, and you can only use technology that you know how to use to benefit the program, the athletes that entrust you in, in developing their programs. Um, any one of us can sit around and learn how to use a, a force, um, uh, a force, a force platform, jump mats, vert jump, um, velocity-based uh, measuring. But do you know how it, it, it impacts and correlates with your program? If that's the case, then go ahead and use it. And so I, I don't think it, it, it do just service for, for me to answer a, blank, a blanket statement. Are they going to use sleep monitoring systems because they're going to use it to their advantage and they have something there that can interpret it and apply it to their training? Meaning, do they have collaboration from the swim coach that's going to that's gonna listen to your points and times where they may be going into a, a time of – um, past the functional overreaching and into, the, into that possible overtraining. Does the coach themselves, like the strength coach themselves, have enough bandwidth? You got three teams, and and you're trying to, to manage all that stuff. Someone's going to fall through the cracks, and it's just it's just compounding work on it. So um, it, it's it's more of a political statement, I guess, for me to say like, yeah, if you can use it, use it. But but I, I think uh, as an industry, we're starting to get too too carried away. I like, uh, I think all of us on this, uh, Lee, maybe not so much. I haven't had a conversation with you as, as much, but definitely June and Matt, Caitlin, in the college realm, were like, every, 
everybody's coming at us and saying like, we got to force profile everybody. What's, you know, what's, what, you know, where are their jump imbalances? Like their jump imbalances, they were never taught to jump. So throw your platform out the garbage and just teach them how to jump. You know, like uh, Matt said it best, like these people that say they can't, they can't Olympic lift, you're just a lazy coach. Learn how to coach the Olympic lifts. You don't need any piece of technology to do that. You need your, your eyes and your best form of, uh, um, uh, of coaching. But uh, so that's going to be my, my only response to that is uh, I won't dig deep into what individual athletes are doing on the national team. That's, that's their right to know. And, and uh, it's probably not at me for Liberty to discuss that. But I mean, Caitlin, you're at the Taj Mahal of training. You've got 9,454 platforms at the new Michigan place. I'm sure that, uh, every, every deck is set up with uh, some sort of athlete monitoring system. Go ahead and uh, take it because you, you're kind of you're at the Mecca. Yeah, and it's funny because um, so we, Gym Aware, which is a, a velocity-based training system, um, we were introduced to that, I think it's four years ago now. And um, when Bo Sandoval, our, our assistant director, left and went to the UFC, I kind of took over as the, the lead with that and utilized it with swimming and diving um, and everything. But kind of like Keenan mentioned and, and stuff, it's a lot of it came down to it didn't matter that I was measuring them because I had individuals who couldn't jump properly. So it's there's no point in going through and, and setting up this measuring and teaching them that. Let me take the time that I have with them to teach them how to jump properly, to teach them how to do the Olympic lifts and the derivatives properly. Um, and I think it's, it's also dependent upon your, your training situation. Again, same kind of what Keenan mentioned. If I have a group um, of athletes and it's a full team of 30 or 35 athletes, sometimes 40, one, do we have enough units to monitor all of that? Which, again, we're really fortunate. So now we, we have 20. Um, so if we pair up, we've got, you know, like, we can service a good number. But then at the same time, like, is it really helping them in that immediate training session? Is the time that I've had to take to teach them the software been beneficial? And are we making progress with it? Um, and then also on the back end, what specifically am I looking at? What are the, what does the reporting look like for me? What does it look like to the coaches? What does it look like to the student athlete? And is the time investment there better spent actually coaching them and working with the student athlete? Um, so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword a little bit, um, a little bit out of the realm of swimming, but we have catapult and we have this discussion as well. And I think we've been able to, um, effectively implement and utilize the systems to an extent but it's also very dependent upon the training situation if you have one athlete you're working with and they're a high level athlete and they're very aware of their bodies then by all means we can get that extra you know one percent out of them today and, and stuff so it's, it's very situation dependent um and then just again looking at what is your overall goal with today's training sessions with this macro cycle with this micro cycle um, and then looking at the, the cost analysis of it. Good. There's a, a, too much uh, agreement going on here. I'd like to see a little bit more sparks flying, but I think it's uh, that we're all on the same page. Um, anyone else so putting on this? I can talk, you asked about, you talked about metrics too, right? So for me, I look at vertical jump and pull-ups and it's, uh, 
even before that, we start with an overhead squat with a wooden dowel because the very first thing I want to make sure we have in check is proper human alignment because none of the numbers matter if you don't have proper human alignment. So proper pull-up, we, and we do neutral grip. I don't like pronated grip pull-ups. We do neutral grip. Um, they gotta, they got to come completely straight. And they got to pull their chin above the bar, and it's got to be controlled, no snapping, no rocking. And we'll, we'll, we'll give them a count. And typically our high level females are somewhere from 10 to 10 to 20 range. It just depends on how muscular they are too. And our men are typically somewhere from 20 to 30. Caleb was 32. And um, so pull up. If, if you can't pull yourself up the, it, within the standards that we've kind of seen over the course of 18 years, it's typically two reasons, one of two reasons or both. One, you're either just not strong or you're overweight. Because if, if you're overweight, pull-ups are really hard. And if you're overweight, you get a lot of extra wear and tear in the water on your shoulders. So to, it's an appropriate measurement for a swimmer. Vertical jump, typically it's the same concept. You're either low neural drive or you're overweight. And all these things, we can, we can address all that within the training program. And it's not, it's not a difficult thing to see. You, you know when someone's overweight. Like for the most part, you know when they're overweight. You can see it. and your co your coaches will also let you know about it because they, as you know, you work with swim coaches. They they will let you know about it as well. So the for me, metrics are kept easy and man, maybe easy is the wrong word, but manageable because sometimes you get too many metrics. Now it's paralysis by analysis, and at some point you just got to train. I'd like to turn this over to, to June if I can. I, I know I've heard an interview with uh, with the head coach there, Todd, who one of the Todd Todd Desorbo. One of the metrics that he liked is also the uh, the the vertical jump. Is that something that you work with the swimmers on over there, June? Yeah. So Todd Todd's big premise is is strength. He, he loves that. He loves what we do, and he sees the value that we bring to the sport or all sports in general. But so they test their vert jumps on a jump mat at the pool, actually. Um, due to some resources on our end, we thought it would be best that he would do that at the pool, and he sends me those numbers periodically. Uh, all he wants me to focus on is getting them as strong as possible and as powerful as possible, and that's pretty much all the par parameters he gives me. Uh, the, the first years, I will say, though, they're just on a very base program for the whole first year, uh, not worrying about uh bar speed or anything like that just making sure those movement patterns are ingrained and then i i will say though that we have used tendo units as a way to measure bar speed with upperclassmen uh pretty easy to set up and demonstrate how to use so they they buy into it right away because it gives them a solid number to shoot for if i say hey guys i want 0.7 meters per second and i want that to pop up pop up on the screen uh they they go for it and I think subconsciously they have a, they kind of gear their body towards, okay, I, I got to push really hard because I got to get that number. Um, so if anything, for that reason alone, I, I've liked using Tendo units, uh, not because like I want to track all their numbers and everything, but it gives them a sense of ownership uh, to their training. And especially this past year, when, when a lot of them saw that they were pushing loads at 80%, the same speed that they were pushing 70% at two or three weeks ago, it shows them they're making progress quantitatively and so that was huge for us and uh obviously obviously like all of us i wish we had seen our efforts come to fruition to some degree but 
here we are talking about it. That, that's smart. I, I like what you're saying about the Tendo units there because of what we kind of alluded to earlier with swimmers just being grinding athletes. That just seems to be the standard or the default that swimmers go to as they just um, determine their level of success based off of their exertion. So for them to see those metrics and to be able to improve off of that, I, I think that's, that's extraordinary. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will add in one thing though, like I know many of us probably have problems with athletes overloading the bar or like I want to push heavier weights. Uh, and the Tendo units help a lot in that Hey man, you didn't hit the speed. You can't go up anymore. Or why are you at seventy-five percent when I told you sixty-five percent? And that gives them accountability there. And that I thought that worked really well. One of the things I've I've worked on doing is um, instilling a a culture of of reinforce. So there's a lot of bravado in the weight room, or there tends to be anyway. And one of the things that I really like focusing on is is um, having a culture where we're really focusing on uh, on technique more than weight. And I think, you know, the standard is obviously going to most like uh, high school football weight rooms, they're going to be focusing on on weight. But to have it such that there's almost like a, 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 a social faux pas away from just like that, that doesn't look right. I think that that also just that social element, um, it works works to our advantage in a lot of especially in the, the high school case where egos start getting big and some of these some of these better athletes. Mm -hmm. um, um, so one of the things, you know, just kind of sticking on something similar here, um, when we are at a high level, so like you said, when you have a lot of the freshmen coming in June that, um, and this is probably the same across the board, most of the athletes are going to be on a very rudimentary program just to kind of get them up to speed with what the rest of the college athletes are doing kind of later on. When we're working with some of these higher uh, level athletes, though, how much um, are we concerned with uh, focusing on getting athletes better in the weight room? And how much are we concerned with just not screwing them up? It, can anyone speak to that? Both. I mean, yep. it kind of depends, right? Like, uh, if they if they've come through if they've come through a program for four years uh, or longer with anybody that's on this present phone call, then you're you're working on okay, what what physiological what what motor properties can I make better in this athlete, right? So after four years of the college routine most of the time the, the athlete and the coach have allowed the strength coach to kind of rewrite their program because the kids don't need to be on the same thing that the college kids are on and they don't want to be on it so if they come to your program like we can all speak to it as soon as they are done boom they're done with the college program they have more of an individualized program now let's say that uh because I think, yeah, I mean, all, all, all of us on here have had kids that didn't come through our college or through our club program come and join our program. I mean, it's different, right? So uh, if an athlete, is a good example, if an athlete came from Florida, like all I have to do is watch, watch the kid, never, never seen Matt work with an athlete before, knew his resume spoke for itself, but the first time this kid walks into the weight room, you knew that they can lift. They know what to do. They, they, they didn't like to do it. And heaven forbid you actually kind of push them over a limit. Then they, then they get upset. But they knew how to lift. That's not the case for everybody. So all of us have our own, our own benchmarks. To Matt, like, yeah, I've got vertical strength uh, indexes that I want every female and I want every male to hit. And you don't, you don't progress to anything 
pressing upper body or uh, weighted vertical pulling until you can reach these, these body weight standards. There's a certain way I want you to look on a front squat. There's a certain way I want you to look on a back squat. And until you do that, we don't, we don't load you up. There's a certain way I want you to hinge. And each of us probably, some of us go from, from floor up, some of us probably go from, from uh, down to floor. Regardless of what it is, we have our criteria that you can hit. And it's, and it's, a, and it's a non-negotiable. So, yeah, you, you have come to us and you're either on the national team or you've made an international event. Or maybe you're, you're really talented and you've made the Olympic Games. Maybe you're super talented and you're in the top one percentile and you've made the Olympic Games and come home with individual hardware. That's great. I want to keep you there. You're going to succeed in the 200 butterfly. You're not going to succeed because all of a sudden I could take you from cleaning with just the bar to cleaning uh, 100 kilograms. I ain't going to make it. It can set you back. So I have my criteria to kind of walk you through. This is what I want you to do. I think it, and I think it seems it, it goes back to those of us that, are in the, the, that have worked in the college realms. Like if they come from lean, yeah, they're going to be a different program as a freshman than if they come from not Lee down the road, right? Like it's just, it's just, just known. Or they may come from not Lee down the road and they can squat uh, sneaks to cheeks unbelievably, but they can't move in the water. They can't finish a threshold set. So now their, their curriculum changes differently in the weight room because physically they're, they're pretty much done products. And physically, they're going to start to break down because swimming just got real. And swimming became the priority, not weightlifting. So um, that's probably like a good way, like just a way that I look at it. Yeah, both. Like if they, if they come through a legit system, then, then we're probably adding qualities to it. If they haven't come from the system that we're familiar with, then we're worried about not screwing them up. Makes a lot of sense. Anyone else here? Lee, Lee, maybe like you could speak to that. That it, it that, that now impacts it at the at the club level, right? Like, nation's capital is, is the best club in America. Boom, hands down. So everybody that lives on the Beltway and people from all over the world are trying to join the program. You probably have a set of criteria of like, even though they're in your senior group, but they just joined your senior group but didn't come through your kind of developmental program. What that looks like. Sure. I mean, you know, if, if you think of swimmers along a big, wide spectrum, you've got ones that are just really good movers and ones that aren't in general. Can we improve upon those things? Absolutely. Um, I know with at least two of the coaches on here, I, I've, had, I've sent some athletes to your programs. Um, and I can tell you that, or even coming from you, Keenan, I got the Travis sisters after you had had them at North Baltimore. Um, girls who love to lift and move really, really well. Um, where it's a lot easier to progress them and put a bar in their hand and get them fired up about lifting heavier things. And then you've got ones that don't move well and don't have either, you know, either they're not stable enough, their efficiency, their neural drive, things aren't coming together for them. It really is an individual, you know, case-by-case -case basis with every one of these athletes. Um, hopefully when we're sending them away to college, um, they, are, they are looked upon as, you know, you come – Katie was a perfect example. When we finally sent her off to Stanford, she came back with her college program. She showed it to me. And as I, if I recall correctly, she was doing RDLs with 65 pounds. That was the stuff we were doing when she was 14. Um, I mean, I know that the college coaches really in that, that first semester, first year in a lot of cases, just have to go to lowest common denominator as far as their team programming. 
to make sure that they're not getting too far ahead of the curve for, for anyone. Um, and then, you know, you've got, you know, John, you've got, you've got Sean Conway, who he probably got to school and was probably one of the best movers in your entire program. And he's an ox. Um, you know, it really is, you know, the college job is, is very different. Um, and I think that there are challenges there as far as, you know, some of these kids have been doing it for three, four years and doing it at a very high level. And then some have been coming from club programs where all they ever had was a medicine ball and a pool deck. Uh, they did push-ups, they did pull-ups. Every once in a while, they do some bodyweight squats um, and they're flimsy flops, floppy noodles. And you now have to teach them how to front squat, back squat, hinge, uh, it, you know, and it's, it, it's, I mean, it is a wide spectrum of athletes that you have to work with. Um, but I think, uh, John, to your point, I think we have to really try not to mess up these athletes because, you know, when a kid winds up, um, in, in one of these big-time college programs, even if they're not good in the weight room, they were good at something. So we need to make sure that we're not I, – I always say I, I want us to really own our space as strength and conditioning coaches, but not overstate or overstep what we're actually there for. Um, and I think there are strength coaches across the country who do, who think they're a larger part of it than they need to be rather than meeting the athletes where they are communicating with the coaches and trying to get the athletes prepared to do what they're there to do. Yeah, I think that's the main thing. Just the, the weight room, strength conditioning, it's meant to complement what's going on in the pool here and hopefully allow that swimmer to get better there. And like Keenan said, just putting on a few more pounds on the barbell may not make you a better 200 flyer. So it's just like, like we're all saying here, it's an individualized approach as much as it can be, depending on the situation and the individual and then making sure you're keeping their joint stressed down and giving them the tools to be better in the water. So I get that a lot of what we're talking about is, especially at a high level, is individualized training. Um, one of the things just kind of, you know, when we are individualizing these things, we do need to kind of take a step back at some point and figure out what box are we starting these people in? Where, where are these people starting from? I just looked outside. It is snowing here in Pennsylvania right now. <laughs> Um, but uh, we're just looking at where these people are starting from, but how do you, um, do you put them in a box as a short distance swimmer? Do you put them in a box as um, a long distance swimmer, as a breaststroker? So, you know, when I, I get an athlete come and start talking to me, they're, they're quick to say that they need to, uh, they need to advance in a certain event or they need to, you know, I need to get better at the, at the thousand or whatever the case might be. But what, um, where do you folks start um, when you start working with athletes, you know, what are the, what are the baseline criteria for where you start these people? Well, for me, it was, it's the three metrics I talked about earlier, overhead squat assessment, vertical jump, and a pull-up. Um, and then it's a conversation with the coach as well. So we had Bobby Fink in our program. I don't know if you guys paid attention to Bobby this year. He broke the NCAA record in a mile at the SEC meet by like 10 seconds. I mean, he was... We've, we've trained that guy very similar to what I did with Caleb the first couple of years. Caleb had no weight room background coming to college, and guy he needed to get stronger. Bobby Fink was in the same category in terms of strength levels. They were, they were awful. So for Bob, Bob and Bob has learned to love the weight room as a, as a, as a miler, as a distance runner, right? So I think that I don't, I don't want to put any athlete in a distance – middle distance or sprint boxes what do they need 
currently to move them into the next level of their career. So for some people that could be strengths and some people could be correctives. And we've had those athletes as well. They come in, they've, they've had an aggressive high school weightlifting program and maybe it's dialing back a little bit and just getting them in better, better, better alignment. So I, I think it depends. You do your first couple assessments and then it's a conversation with the coach, conversation with the athlete, and then you, you put your best foot forward. Anyone have anything to add to that? I think just going back to assessments, I think I'm hitting on a, at, even at the high school and even middle school level, um, I'm doing a lot of the same stuff you guys are doing. I'm also looking at um, plank duration, like for time, like just looking at can they hold body positions over long periods of time, especially with our distance athletes. You know, can they hold a side plank? What do their ratios look like? Side plank versus front plank push up, pull up, and a lot of, you know, vertical jump, both counter movement and non-counter movement, um, just to kind of get a really good feel for what type of athlete they are. And then maybe there's little buckets that you're putting them in, but when you're dealing with 20, 25, 30 at a time, in my, in my world, you're just trying to make them better athletes, you're trying to make them stronger, you're trying to make them more stable. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, you have your, okay, I need to work shoulder stability on this group, I need to work hip stability on this group, but, across the group with the exception of the fact that they're all you know at the college level everyone's probably trying to peak and climax at their season around the same time in my high school season i've got kids who you know are national team members and ones who just want to focus on ncsas or just focus on sectionals so their peak times and john you probably deal with this quite a bit um you're trying to kind of stagger programming based off of that as well um and you know taper for athletes at different times um but those are that's kind of how i'm grouping them as far as their programming within the team um i don't get to do a ton of individualized i get some small groups uh where it gets more specific like i have a group of um two time a week breaststrokers who i get a little bit more specific with what they're doing um stroke specific and power specific um but for the most part we're just trying to make them better athletes especially at the high school uh, high school and middle school level the breaststrokers make for an interesting case because one of the few things that I, I, I specifically use to differentiate them and one of the things that we are working with with our breaststrokers is um, dealing with the prevention of uh, the onset of knee pain. Um, and we do a lot more hamstring work with them than we do with other groups. So in the beginning of practice, we'll uh, give uh, some of our athletes, you know, special correctives and they're just kind of assigned to a, a different group. And one of the groups is basically just a breaststroke group. And, and um, what they do ranges from, you know, Swiss ball hamstring curls, isometric hamstring curls, um, all, all matter of hamstring curls, because, you know, you, you don't see too much knee issues in, in people that have, uh, that have strong hamstrings, especially at that high school level. Um, so I, I, one of the things that I, I definitely wanted to get in here while we, while we still have time, and th this might go on for some, some length of time, is, you know, we are all close enough um, in the, to the swimming world, but still somewhat removed. What do we think um, swimming coaches are doing wrong? So, you know, swimming coaches, from, from their own perspective, they're kind of in their own group and they're in their own head to a certain degree. You know, coming from a, from a more of a, a scientific background or, you know, a lot of us coming through with uh, Masters of Sciences and XFIS, these kind of things, what do we see in the swimming world that, that some uh, swimming coaches tend to be oblivious to? 
the, the let me put it in a positive spin. The last two years, we've had total control of our dryland program at Florida, where with the coach in the past, we had zero control on that dryland piece, and there was a lot of distance running. There was hour-long push-ups, body weight squat, pull-up sessions that were just they were, they were just working for the sake of working and we we cut the from the fall of 17 to the fall of 18 we cut a total this is going to sound ridiculous Keenan, we've talked about this we cut a total of 32 hours over the course of the fall from our dryland program and we had 75 percent less illnesses that fall we had healthier athletes when we tapered and we followed the same process as past year and everybody for the most part got better and <laughs> I was cut short but we had some American records fall at the SEC meet with kids and it's some of the lowest amount of volume we've ever had in dryland. I, I to me we just every, uh, the let me sum it up as this. I think in swimming, everybody thinks about rest at the end of the year, right? Oh, we're gonna rest as hard as, we, as we've worked. But I think the fear for most swim coaches is resting when you're in the middle of a hard cycle and maybe give a kid a day, a Friday off. Give them the Saturday off, let them go to a tailgate. Like take care of the mental piece in the process of working so that their taper counts more at the end. I think that's probably where most swim coaches are missing the missing the boat but we've had some of our best swim performances after uh blizzards and snow days so I, I would agree with that completely totally believe it i know see some of us in the private sector this is a little bit of an easier question than uh people where where someone else is signing your paychecks in the and the college <laughs> sector but i am i am curious to hear what everyone has to say about this across the board sure john is someone who is in the private sector um I think one of the biggest obstacles, and thankfully not with the teams that I, I have under contract and I'm working with, but I see it across, across several clubs and several teams and sites, is there's not enough communication um, between the strength and conditioning coaches and the swim coaches. Um, and there needs to be. Um, we need to know what they're seeing. They should want to know what we're working on and why we're working on it. I think that's all really important stuff. And I think there's either sometimes pride gets in the way or maybe it's too much effort, I don't know. Uh, but I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle is understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it. And on our end, understanding what's this week gonna look like in the water? What's this month gonna look like in the water? Which athlete is focusing on what? what, what what's the upcoming schedule look like? Um, and you know, I feel like at the college level, you guys probably have a much you know, you're there on campus, you've got an open door, hopefully with, with the coaches. Uh, you might even be on pool deck from time to time. Um, so you're seeing it, you're getting a really good understanding of it versus in my world or your world, John, um, you know, we're in the gym. Um, and so unless we're scheduling a meeting or scheduling a call with our coaches um, and they're really being open with, with, with the information and with what they're seeing, uh, it makes our job a little harder. Um, and it also, you know, I feel like that, the open lines of communication that I have with, with like a Bruce Gemmel, for instance, is, is invaluable to me because I know what he's looking for. He has full confidence in what I'm doing um, and what we're doing with the athletes holistically um, as opposed to, okay, they're going off to do their dry land with some guy over here and they come in and they do the swim practice, which I do see with some of my athletes that I get 
privately from some of the other clubs in the area. Kind of to play off the, um, the communication and understanding point, I think one of the, the, not necessarily a challenge, but just something that we had to work on as a full sport coaching staff um, here was the, the want to make dry land be very similar to what was going on in the water when actually what we needed to do is if they were going through a, a threshold development period where we had four weeks of high volume red work, I needed to take things down in the weight room. And so having the communication piece to know, again, what they're doing in the water, but then the coach's understanding, it may appear to be a decrease in volume in the weight room, but that's because you have such a high increase in load and intensity in the pool. Now's the time for me to focus and hone in maybe on some more of the details and the mechanics, because if we burn the candle at both ends, it's going to burn out faster. Right. And so, um, so understanding what they were doing in the pool and communicating to the coaches, what I'm doing in the weight room in terms of volumes and intensities is not going to look like what's going on in the pool. Because again, going back to what, you know, one of the comments John made at the very beginning of this was, we're here to complement the training that they're doing in the pool. And if I'm trying to get X amount out of them in the weight room, and then the coaches are trying to get just as much, if not more out of them in the pool, at some point, those athletes are going to break down, whether it's a high school level or whether it is a collegiate level. And when you get to the collegiate level, then you've got everything else that goes into studies and social life that you have to factor in and consider as well. So I think getting on the same page and really um, daily communication with the sport coaches um, regarding that and what we're doing. Um, and I think, you know, again, we, like you said, it's, we're fortunate that we have the opportunity to go on deck. And I mean, when I was working with the team, particularly on specific days, like um, their threshold work days, um, and then also like their short pool and kick set days, I would try to be on deck or see what their workouts were so that, when we had, because those were also some lift days, um, then I could go in and modify and adjust what we were doing in the weight room if they were getting crushed in the pool or if the volume was, you know, a little bit higher than anticipated. And so um, being able to make those changes on a, on a daily basis as well, um, the work in conjunction with the coaches um, was something that we had to really work to, to be on the same page with. That's, that's really well put. Uh, I didn't want to chime in there a little bit. Well, I've worked with two programs here and I've had no control over their dry land in, in, in both pro in either program, uh, which is fine. I, I think communication then becomes especially important because now you have two different ent entities working towards the same goal. Obviously we want, we want success. Uh, but when you have two entities going at the same rate, you may see improvement, but there's also uh, increased risk for injury or burnout, et cetera. So with that proactive communication, that's something that I, I want to improve on as well with the swim coaches. And uh, my personal case here is I, I'm not able to go on deck or observe practice or dry land as much just due to my other responsibilities here at Virginia. So it, it makes it hard for me to see what the athletes are feeling and doing at the pool. So that communication piece becomes vitally important. And uh, I remember sometimes in the previous regime, they'd go on long distance runs and then they'd come in and I would have heavy squats planned for them and I can't do that anymore, you know? So I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about. And so uh, that communication piece, I think is, is 
a big takeaway from this whole question. Dr. John, one of the things I kind of want to do uh, to bring you in on this for is, is something that, that Matt had uh, brought up earlier, the idea that, you know, some swim coaches kind of, uh, are interested in, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, just CrossFit exercise. They, they see these things and they think it's, you know, functional for, for swimmers. And uh, I know you had a, a pretty good article series on swimming science about, um, about uh, why CrossFit isn't the best idea for swimmers. Yeah, I think it just uh, reiterates a few things that people have already talked about. You know, one, you know, the what we're doing in dry land isn't going to replace swimming. You know, you could try to do the exact same patterns or try to have a, some undulation like in dolphin kick, but it's not going to be anywhere close. So I think it's just hazardous and going to increase one's risk of injury to do that. And then two, I think it just gets back to, to the volume. Um, and this doesn't mean that, you know, obviously CrossFit's, can go a million different ways, but if we just take it for a general like CrossFit workout, it's usually more volume at a pretty high intensity, which can result in improper form and maybe excessive volume that they may already be doing in the water. And then you put on top of it the wrong form, you're only asking for an injury. So it's one where you just have to look at the risk benefit. And once again, isn't complementing what you're doing in the pool. We'll have you know, we had a team here that wanted to do more CrossFit style training and they wanted to load up with weights and this and, all right, show me a single, I mean, they can't do a single limb squat. They can't do this. They can't do that. It's, you know, why are we going to just throw gas on this slow burning fire with a high schooler so they can be an absolute fire full of injuries, even if they have great cuts. We all know great swimmers that are poor in the weight room, which is fine. You can build them up and just be patient over time with them and trying to, you know, accelerate one of those things, especially the weight room, is just a recipe for disaster. And I think a lot of times um, with CrossFit, you can get stuck into into those traps. If I could, if I could play the devil's advocate just slightly here, not on CrossFit. No, well said, John. So let's we'll, we'll say that. Well, well said, John. I think everybody on here would would agree with that. Um, is is kind of back to the coaches. If I can be a devil's advocate, because. Look, I'm not in the position I'm at uh, without the coaches that have influenced me, continue to influence me, um, given my new capacity as I now kind of work for, I don't know, half a dozen coaches directly and that have entrusted me in programming for their athletes. And so I would say it's, it's a, it's a, I don't know how we want to say it, like a cultural thing within the sport, right? So, so strength training in dry land, when I first started and, and definitely Matt, when you first started, right? Like, so 15 plus years ago was what those coaches had experienced as swimmers and what they had experienced um, just being around the game. So if they'd come from other clubs and other college stops, it's what, it's what they picked up along the way. And into their defense up until probably the last quad and a half, um, they just, if they were at an NC2 institution, it was a two to at best three year revolving door where they would get assigned a new strength coach. And it was lots of times uh, an intern or a GA from, from the revenue sports. And so they had had, you know, once bitten, twice shy, they had had a lot of their athletes injured or had, you know, underperformed because they were overtrained by the combination of both the swimming and the strength. What I'm here to tell you now, like, I'm, I'm so luxury because I get to go on sabbaticals. I get to go and, and hang out for a whole week to watch what Matt does. I'm not going to buy the 49 
Matt Delancey program. I want to see how he does it because I got videos right here. He wants to like people say like, oh, he doesn't he doesn't teach Bobby Fink that. I was there when Bobby Fink was a freshman in the fall and he couldn't get his elbows through. And how does Matt talk to this guy as compared to Maxine Rooney, who was there at the time, who could move like a like a like just he had the juice, he could move, right? So I think. <clears throat> To defend the coaches, there's that, right? And then coaches that were assistant coaches at super successful programs. And they just assumed, like, whatever whatever they did in the strength and dry land realm, that, that's why they won. You know, they didn't have, you know, top to bottom, they had only three kids that would be considered uh, average swimmers, right? Top to bottom, they were good. So they're just going to take that and try to apply it to their new college um, situation because that's, that's what worked. And they, they haven't been exposed to it. So I think um, to, to, to defend them, what we've done better now is like we have better, better intentioned coaches at the NC2A level with like, they really want to help the swim programs out. They're not looking at like, all right, just buying my time until the uh, College Strength Coaches Association annual conferences and I can get, I can become the third assistant on football. Like they want to actually impact the athletes. And, and I think that's, that's starting to resonate and they're starting to see that. So so to defend them from there, but but I also think what's happening is more and more of the swim coaches are hearing like June's picking up the phone and calling Nate down at NC State. June's shooting an email to Caitlin and saying what's going on at Michigan because like in any sport, right? It's all the ebbs and flows, right? Everybody wants to know what Caleb's doing. Matt worked with a pretty damn good male swimmer before Caleb got there too, right? I can't. Right? Oh, yeah. Ryan Lockie, right? <laughs> Two different organisms, but they both were studs, right? And, and so now, like, they just they want to hear, hear the same thing. And so I think swim coaches are, like, understanding, man, like, we're, we're talking. We're not the football community. We're not the basketball community, which thinks, like, if Matt knows what I'm doing, does, like, perfect example. If Matt knows what I'm doing and, Matt, and I know what Matt's doing, it's still going to come down to Ryan and Michael getting in lane four, lane five, and they're going to figure it out, not what Matt and I do. And we're happy to show each other whatever we do. You know, I had the opportunity to take on someone that has, although a different gender, but a very same event profile uh, that, that, that Caleb has. Ask, ask Matt. Many, many times I've called him, texted him, and been like, hey, what do you do to uh, express this motor potential? What do you do to express this part of the swim, the start, the, the walls, the turns? He's going to share it with me, I guess, maybe because they're different genders. No, I think Matt knows, like, whatever. If it makes our country better, good. We want it next year in Tokyo. We want to hear our national anthem and no other country's national anthem. Sorry, Caitlin, but I don't want to hear Canadians' national anthem. <laughs> uh, so, so, I think if I just, just kind of play devil's advocate. That's awesome. One of the – one thing I, I – I wanted to talk about while I still had some time here, um, a little bit of a tangent, but um, one of the things I've had a tremendous amount of success with is uh, land-based warm-ups next to the pool. Um, so these come in hand not only during, uh, you know, just regular practice or whatever, but also um, also in, in, in uh, you know, busy pools, state meets, you know, big meets, things like that, where you can't, you can't swim as nice as you'd like, even if you want to, because you're, you're grabbing feet and you're kicking heads. So um, has anyone else had success with programming uh, any kind of land-based warm-up next to the pool, either before meets or before practice? Hey, John, I have to 
I've got a team starting in three minutes, so I've got to pop off. But my answer would be yes, absolutely, both at meets and in practices. Uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of the answers. Guys, thanks so much for having me on. I was uh, honored to be here with all you guys. Thank you, Lee. Thank you. Thanks, Lee. We have we have a we have a uh, poolside warm up for for the women and um, the men. The men utilize our two dry land days. They come in, we trigger point stretch, hit our dry land, and then they go to the pool. So there there are some uh, definite definite uh, benefits to doing something dry land and going to the water right after. So why don't we have we and we have something we do on meet day too. So I mean, there's we have a little dynamic. I call it our athletic series for the swimmers. It's nothing more than like forward skipping, backward skipping, karaoke shuffle, things like that. Where Australian athletes take it for granted, but then you watch a swimmer try to do a karaoke and then trip and fall and scrape themselves up on the turf. That's that's common occurrence. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but so to answer the question, yeah, I think I think there's be big benefit to that. Awesome. Any anyone else on this before we get some some closing comments here? Again, I'm gonna be the outlier, but I, I don't care. Like, uh, y'all been to NC2As? Uh, if you work at the club setting, you've been to zones. If you've been to an international competition, but eventually they're gonna have to get ready to swim with a lot of people in their lane. If you go to an international competition, it's just like driving. And cats swim on the other side of the uh, of the pool. So. I'm kind of, and, and again, I'm going to say it's probably attributed to the coaches that I grew, swim coaches that I grew up working with, in that, like, the path's not going to always be clear. At some point in time, there's going to be some adversity. So if they go to their first um, college, dual, sectional, whatever meet, and there's too many people in their lane, now what the hell are they going to, if you keep clearing the path, clearing the path for them, then they go to the international competition. I'll use a, a straight example. 2009 World Championships. Warming up for the finals of the 100 fly. And remember that was the, the 100 fly and, and there was that uh, the guy that didn't know how to finish an eight running his mouth and saying he would buy Michael uh, uh, whatever suit he wanted to make an evil competition. Well, Michael's warming up less than 20 minutes before. Pushes off, and again, an athlete not not understanding like what side of the pool to swim in ran into him, split his goggles open, eye cut open. What were we supposed to say? Timeout. Let's delay the hundred fly. Things aren't going smoothly. Things aren't. Now he stood up, and I think I think he finished okay with them, right? And I, I mean, I know we don't want to use the greatest of all time as as the example, but we, we kind of have to. You know, um, there's no way to to prepare. Caleb Dressel for, I think it was the second to last night of World Championships this summer, right? He had four or three races back to back to back. You can't simulate that. But guess what? Like, the kid was as cool as a cucumber. He's like, just get me to the blocks. I'll, I'll take care of the rest. The ISL, I told Matt, I took a picture of it, right? When they had those skin shootouts. <laughs> Kayla is the most amazing short course thing I've ever seen in my life, right? So they had to do a 50, rest 50. Caleb's Smoking fools by body length in the 50, and his opponents getting massage, getting their, their scalps, the, the secret potion. Caleb's just like chilling, like, all right, let's go, let's get this done. So I, I'm going to say, like, 
And uh, I don't know if it's hit the NC2A deck. And again, you guys don't like the you had you had the conference meets, but not your NC2A meets. Let's keep the broomsticks in the janitor's closet. Let's keep them off the pool deck. Like pool decks are already crowded enough. Like if you can't get them ready to swim without like the mop and 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 like come on, right? Like pretty soon we're gonna need to actually have our swim competitions in the Dallas Cowboys Stadium because we got ready covering up the deck. Sorry, it's my little soapbox, my little tangent, but uh, you're sweating on that one too. I know, geez. Jeez. So Keenan, <laughs> do you have them to ready? Your own anecdote. I mean, you've all been there, right? Like, I don't know, like we had some great swim performances before we needed to like individualize and, and clear all these paths and I mean, Matt, you've told it enough, right? Like, the training begets the performances. There was lots of times where I'm sure Ryan showed up in a, a suboptimal training state, but he still got it done, right? And the performances at the end of the year. Way to put it. <laughs> suboptimal. That's a, that's a fair way to put it. Let me tell you this story real quick, though. It goes along the lines of fighting through adversity. Um, Lochte broke his ankle skateboarding a month before the world championship meet in 2007. And then jumping into the, into the pool for the prelim swim with the two back, he refractured that ankle. Um, he broke the world record at that meet and won the gold medal with a broken ankle. So <laughs> you're already there. I mean, what are you going to do? So I, I, I think that goes along the lines of like, Michael having somebody split his eye open and you're you're not going to let how many years you've been training get in the way of that moment right there. So I, I, I totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. Awesome. All right. I guess we should just kind of close it there. I, I, it's always, it's always fantastic talking to you people. Every, every four years is, is too long. We need to do this more. Um, uh, does everyone want to kind of go through where we could hear more about you, John? Dr. John, should we start with you? Sure. Um, SwimmingScience.net. Um, you can also hop on Facebook. We have a Swimming Science page and a Swimmers Corner group where we're doing some um, different interactive things to help people continue to learn and, and grow on dry land and biomechanics and all those types of things. Also, uh, the facility in Santa Clara is CORE, C-O-R. You can check us out there if you're in the Bay Area. Caitlin? Um, so I just have my own Twitter account. Uh, it's just at Caitlin Haycock. And then um, I don't put out too much as far as social media goes. Um, but email, um, feel free to, to reach out to me there. Um, and I'm more than happy to answer questions. And uh, I try to uh, go to a, a decent number of conferences and, and touch base with swim coaches still and stay within that community. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Keenan? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, K-K-R-I-R-S-H. Um, I don't, uh, I don't, I rarely put anything of the athletes uh, I work with. I think, I feel like I just uh, respect their privacy and what they do, but I try and uh, um, put out pretty good information if I see it's coming from whether one of these colleagues on this, on this uh, phone call or, or the rest that are in this industry working with swimmers, trying to put that out there. My Instagram is, is exclusively, you know, my two children. So um, I keep that pretty private. I don't want to, uh, yeah. But um, 
other than that, like I'm in Colorado Springs, email me, give me a phone call. I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer if I can't. Um, and uh, I'm on the road quite a bit. Uh, as soon as the world opens back up, I'll be out on the road. So if I can ever uh, uh, remember a lot on your deck, then I'd love to do that. So. Awesome. Matt? I have a Twitter and Instagram. They're both Matt Delancey. Um, my email address is matthewd at gators.ufl.edu. Feel free to email me with questions. I typically respond within a couple days. Awesome. June? Uh, whether you call it a weakness or something weird about me, I don't have any social media. Uh, Good but for you. Maybe, maybe I should start a Twitter just for the sake of, you know, connecting with everyone such as yourselves. But um, I'm always accessible through email and, and phone. I'm always happy to share and, and talk about training. The other week I was on a call with, uh, I believe, Matthew Cox. He's at UC San Diego. Uh, John Snyder of Stanford was on that. Uh, and, and several other strength coaches there were just talking. And it was a good time. And uh, spoke with Nick Folker out at Hawaii and shared my whole first-year program with him just because, like, what are we trying to hide here, you know? So I'm always happy to share. So please reach out. And it's, it's been uh, an honor to be on this call with you guys. Awesome. And again, I'm John Matalevich. You can find more about me uh, at Ruthless Perform on Twitter and Instagram. Um, Instagram for me is kind of the same thing. My private Instagram account is just pictures of me hiking more than anything. But kind of like the, it seems like the theme of today is just, you know, collaboration. We're just trying to make better athletes all around and, and let, the, uh, let the pool be the deciding factor and, and the athlete's effort. But uh, I, I look forward to talking to you folks more, and I, I genuinely hope we could do this more. Sounds great. Same here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, John. Thanks for having me on. Yep. See you guys. Take care. See ya. Have a good one. Take care, everyone. The Human Advancement Podcast is a division of Ruthless Performance, whose focus is creating champion athletes through the application of sports science, expert collaboration, and the ruthless pursuit of excellence. You can learn more about Ruthless Performance by visiting ruthlessperformance.com, specifically through our online education tab. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Ruthless Perform. The Human Advancement theme was written by Bernie Wallace-Savage. Find him at wallacesavage.bandcamp.com and on Instagram at Bernie.Wallace-Savage.